In this podcast, Safe Lives' Michelle Phillips, Head of Practice, talks to Chief Creative Officer at Rockpool, Sue Penner, about the psychological impact of surviving domestic abuse. Together, they examine how mental health and domestic abuse often go hand in hand. In the context of COVID-19, they discuss how important it is that we recognise the impacts of mental health and how we can all take a more trauma-informed approach going forward. Hi, Sue. How are you? I'm good, thank you, in this lovely weather. It is amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely gorgeous. And you down there in Cornwall with the beautiful view of the sea and the beaches. So, Sue, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast with us. I think it's going to be a really interesting opportunity for people to hear about your work, what you've done um, up to this point and what you're doing at the moment that will help people have a better understanding about the mental Mm -hmm. health impact on people who are living with uh, domestic abuse but particularly um, we're going to talk at one point about this current um, COVID-19 period and what the impact of that is going to be. But I just want to start by giving a little bit of history. So I was thinking earlier that it's 13 years since I first met you and you were a lead editor trainer for Safe Lives. God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> Isn't it just? And I can remember walking into your training room and thinking you were pretty awesome, um, I have to say. Um, and at that point, as well as being a lead um, editor trainer, you also were the specialist professional who came in to talk to the IDVAs about mental health and vicarious trauma. Do you want to just explain a little bit more about why you were doing that, what your background is that gave you that expertise? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think um, it's because I probably have quite a unique skill set in that I am, um, well, it's not unique because there are other people, but I'm a mental health professional originally. Originally, I trained as an occupational therapist specialising and working with people that had had childhood trauma. But also I had um, moved away from the NHS and um, I was the coordinator of a domestic abuse forum and did lots of work in um, refuge and outreach. So I, I came at this with a sort of those two perspectives, really, of combining both the, the mental health knowledge I had and also um, the DV knowledge. So I think that's why I ended up doing those bits. Mm-hmm. And did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy training in a room full of idvers? Yeah, I mean, I think it was always quite challenging. I think, I think, um, you know, it, it was by the very nature of what they have to do, have to be quite assertive and challenging people, um, and uh, that happens in the training room as well. But I think what what I what I was really aware of was that, um, and I think it's even possibly it's even more true now that increasingly um, in refuges and in the DA sector where we're working with people with complex needs so people that have mental health needs and have drug and alcohol needs and I guess my perspective on that is maybe um, that that's an inevitability of the trauma that people have experienced for some individuals so I think that what I brought was also not just some basic knowledge but I also brought some interpretation of mental health issues and diagnoses and the the pros and cons of that really Mm -hmm. and the one thing I remember at the time as well is that the IDVAs they always wanted more mental health they 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 couldn't hear enough about how they could better interact and support clients who had mental health issues that they were experiencing but also how to connect with services as well to be able to get the best support and the best response for the clients. I think one of the issues is also part of what I used to try and do in the training was give the 
it was a sort of a, a language so that they could communicate with mental health services or GPs or whoever they were. I mean, I think health is undoubtedly the Cinderella service and always has been of the NHS, but the routes to access it are really difficult. So what's happened over the years is that the, it's a bit like safeguarding, you know, it's a bit like social workers and safeguarding are left to deal with the most difficult and challenging cases because the uh, the other bits of their work that they might have used to have done, like early intervention and supporting people, tends to get taken away. They have to just follow their statutory obligations. And the same happens in mental health. There are thresholds. And the thresholds mean that increasingly mental health services are just providing a service predominantly to people that have what's called severe and enduring mental health needs. So these are people that often have psychoses, that need long stays in hospital, that need community care orders. Um, and so... Although our clients' needs are huge and they're vulnerable um, and they're struggling, they often don't meet the threshold for mainstream mental health services. And and I think that, you know, when I first started doing that training, quite incomprehensible to a lot of the people mm-hmm. who quite rightly were saying, but, you know, my client is self-harming or my client is suicidal or my, you know, and couldn't understand why they couldn't access that specialist support. And that won't have changed. They still won't be able to. So I, I think there's going to be, as much as those idvers at that time really wanted the information, I think more and more people want stuff around complex trauma and understanding how we can support. I think there's also, um, there's, a, there's a fear around psychiatry or people with mental health issues sometimes because of the stigma that is, is associated with it and people's fear of it, and not knowing what to do and being afraid of making it worse and um yeah being quite off put by sometimes people's very what in psychiatric terms florid you know big symptoms you know and actually I think what I tried to do in that training with it was was to demystify it a bit and just make it make it like this could happen actually to any of us it's just a continuum and most of us stay on one side some of us fall over sometimes I end up the other side, but it's, we could all be that person given the right set of circumstances. They're not different. People that experience mental health problems aren't different from us. And actually, I think when you explain what symptoms are and why people are behaving the way they are, then actually it means that we, we have a way into them, that we can connect with them. And if we can connect to them, then we can support and help them. Um, so I think I think that's why people want it more often, Michelle, because I just, you know, it wasn't a lot of time I had with them. So to give them a bit of an insight is then. But for instance, there's a, there's a brilliant book called The Shock mm-hmm. of the Fall. I'm really sorry, I can't remember the author. But it is, you know, if people, are, if people are interested in psychosis or understanding what that experience is for people, just read it. It's a novel. It's the best description I've ever read around what it's like for somebody who's going through a huge change in the way that they think and behave. I love that book. (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's great. Thanks. So I've I've Googled it, actually. It was, um, the author is Nathan Filler, F-I-L-E-R. And I remember, I think I might have recommended it to you, actually, and was quite hesitant about doing so. You know so much about it, you're such an expert about it, they don't necessarily want to read fiction about it. And I can remember you coming back saying, you know, what you've just described now, um, that it, it, you know, that it, it does, it does all of that. And yeah, I can recommend it enough it's it's beautifully written it's humanely written and it just fantastically describes what it's like to be psychotic I think so great thank you so um can you describe then um the mental health impact on people who live with domestic abuse yeah I mean I think it's um I would see it as living with a trauma that it's um it has the same impact on people that any long-term trauma 
has, like so people that have been in wars or um, lived in refugee areas or being trafficked or being held a prisoner of war. And I think lots of people are familiar with the comparisons that are made between um, Biderman's cycle of coercion and um, people that have been um, abused. And I, for me, what happens is that to survive that terror and that fear, um, you have to change the way that you view yourself in the world. So what happens is that um, you see everything from the perspective or you start to see everything from the perspective of keeping the perpetrator, the person that's hurting you happy. Because if they are happy, then you don't get hurt either physically or emotionally. And so what you do with that is that you have to sort of um, change the way that you think. And I actually believe it puts people into this, what is a psychology term called cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is when we have two sorts of beliefs in our head and we can't contain those two sorts of beliefs. And for safety and survival, we choose one. It's exactly the same technique that's used in... Um, cults and in brainwashing people so if I I mean the example that I use in my training is always the one about you know you're living with somebody who who is demanding that they have their tea at a certain amount at a certain time of the day um, you can't do that because you work but it's escalating they've become more verbally abusive they've started refusing to eat the food and throwing it at you so actually to make things easier you change something in your life to fit that you change you leave work earlier you prepare the food the night before you do something to make it right um but in that process any sense of your assertive behavior your sense of being gets altered because you are having to do something that is against what you probably think is what you should have to do in a reasonable world so in that process of change um, I think what happens then for people is 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 a couple of things. One is that um, they start to see the world completely from through the eyes of of the person that's hurting them. Um, they will probably already have been isolated by the person that hurts them, so um, there's no one to check out and say, "What are you doing that for?" That's really, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. You should be able to cook the tea. She, you know, she should be able to cook the tea. Um, so we start to change how we think, but that makes us deeply unhappy. Um, and in that process, um, also with the with the abusive pattern is to, you know, following something like the Biderman cycle, you sort of isolate people from um, others, you keep them busy so that you exhaust them, you make them do things that are degrading and you threaten them. Um, that, that process is going on all the time while the demands are increasing and it's exhausting and tiring and people turn to all sorts of ways of coping with that just again for survival and that might mean turning to alcohol or drugs or becoming emotionally unwell and it's it's part of that survival mechanism I think unfortunately what I've experienced or witnessed a lot in working in the sector is that rather than saying to people hey well done you did what you did to keep you and your children safe at that time people are told off for it or um labeled or, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's used in court against them um, because people don't understand the way we adapt to live with trauma. Yeah, and when I was um, listening to your Rockpool interview podcast last week, you talked about the internalised perpetrator, 
which wasn't something I'd heard before. But listening to you um, talk about all of that now reminds me um, that when I heard you mention it for the first time last week, it had quite an impact on me. And, and I have thought about it quite a lot since, actually, because I think you made me realise, having been in um, an abusive relationship nearly 30 years ago now, was that actually the voice in my head that's telling me things and telling me I'm you know I'm not good enough and I'm useless and all of these things it's not my voice actually I've always thought it was so can you just tell tell talk a bit more about the internalized perpetrator yeah I mean I think when I first wrote the recovery toolkit group program which was sort of over 15 years ago and sort of combined those DV skills with my mental health skills I talked to lots of women and I'd been working in outreach for a long time and I was just always struck by the number of and it was predominantly women I was working with who would who would say to me quite candidly do you know the bruises heal the cuts go away and what doesn't stop and at this point they would sort of point to their head and they say what doesn't stop is this voice in here and it was like what is that what is that voice fascinated me was that because I recognized from my own background that voice too you know mm-hmm. it just appears it's always the negative voice and it's um and it has become that the reason I call it the internalized mm-hmm. perpetrator is is because it becomes part of us and we don't recognize it anymore that's the internalized bit you know we just take it on as part of us that's 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 what we mean by that word internalized so what we actually okay. do when we've been in an abusive relationship is we have taken on some of the perceptions and the beliefs and the negativity, the negativity geared us, that the perpetrator used to give us. So if we, if we leave an abusive relationship and uh, we are made safe physically um, and supported in that, uh, that's obviously the first thing that needs to happen. But I think also unless we find some way of addressing that internalized perpetrator that we carry, then what we do is that we leave individuals vulnerable to the next perpetrator that comes along because it's really easy to access that. If you want to abuse somebody and they've been in an abusive relationship before, you've just got a way in. It's just easy. And and because, because we've taken those things on as our belief system. So for me, it was about thinking, well, if that is, yeah. if that person has taken on that, that perpetrator's voice into their, into their head. And goodness knows enough women were telling me that's how it felt. I had to think about, well, well how do we manage that then? So what I know as a mental health professional is that um, if someone's been through trauma, then as a part of that trauma, they often develop negative thinking and they will feel responsible for what happens. So uh, particularly children, which is also why we, we, do, we work with children around exactly the same concept as we work with the adults. So for instance, if, uh, if you develop post-traumatic stress disorder after being in a road traffic accident and most people don't most people after a six to eight week period recover being in an event doesn't mean you develop something but if you've developed post-traumatic stress disorder um, from being in an accident what people do is they start to do that cognitive shift think about the situation and then they start to blame themselves for it so people will say if I hadn't driven that road that night Um, if only I had slowed down earlier, Um, if I had stopped off at my family's on the way home, I wouldn't have been on the road then. So they start to do these things. So if you've got this internal voice of the perpetrator, you have to have some mechanism for getting rid of it. And I just, you know, 15 years ago, looked at what was around for treating trauma generally. 
And at that time, it was recommending this thing called trauma-focused CBT. So we take a bit of that and we help people begin to recognise when the thinking is theirs and when the, the voice in the thinking is actually thinking put into their head by the internalised perpetrator, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can help people choose not to have that voice in their head by a mechanism of keeping things like thought diaries and teaching people how to challenge that thinking. So that's why, for me, it's crucial because if we don't address the internalised perpetrator, then what happens is that we leave someone vulnerable. And if we don't leave them vulnerable, we leave them maybe never feeling that they have the right to the sort of life that other people have, that they don't deserve it somehow. Yeah, absolutely. So why is a trauma-informed approach so important? It's important on lots of different levels. So the the first thing about a trauma-informed approach is that it focuses on not triggering somebody by getting them to talk about bad things that have happened to them. This is where I think it used to be very challenging when I trained the inverse IDVAS. And sometimes even on our training, I think this is quite a challenging perspective for people. Because there is an overriding myth from counselling and psychology and psychotherapy that you can talk this out, that you just need to talk about and talk about it and eventually it will get better and there isn't really any evidence for that and in fact more likely the evidence now is that what happens is that we just keep re-traumatizing people that by getting them to keep telling that story we keep it really raw for them and this is born out of my own clinical practice when I when I was working um, with clients was that I worked a lot with clients that had been sexually abused as children and um followed you know I'm classically sort of you know Rogerian humanistic therapist trained I followed the guidance in a way by allowing people to talk about what had happened to them um showing them positive regard and doing all the things I've been trained to do and it was in supervision that I I was struck by the number of people that came for one appointment and never came back I don't think mine was any higher than lots of other people, but it concerned me about what was going on in that. And I think of reflection, I thought it was because I was allowing them to come in and tell me what had happened to them in a way that was traumatic and distressing and probably triggering. So I changed the way that I worked and became more proactive in my approach in, in that I would spend, I spent longer making, which is a trauma-informed approach, people safe in the room. So by that, I mean, I would spend longer laying down the sort of boundaries of of what our therapeutic alliance would be. So it wouldn't be about talking about what happened to them. Um, It would be about looking at the impact of what happened to them and then trying to find ways to improve the impact. And if at the end of that, they still needed to talk about it, then fine. But I felt that, that by then they would have some strategies in place to deal with the trigger if it happened again. And I think the same is, you know, within the trauma-informed work that we do, it's the same principle. Now, in true trauma-informed practice, there are different things that happen to people. And talking about the narrative for some people is important, and that's a separate piece of work. And we don't, we don't do that. What we do is focus on that trauma-informed practice of making people feel very safe um, by being very clear about what the boundaries of the group work is, that we won't be talking about your previous experience. And in fact, we will stop you if you start to do that. The result of that is that is that there's a sense of relief for lots and lots of people. They just go, well, thank goodness for that, because I don't really want to talk about it anymore. Because we're not going to change it. We can't, we'll never understand why that person did that to you. But what we can do is look at how you can move forward from that. And the other thing that I think is really important in trauma 
informed work is that um, is developing a sense of trustworthiness for your client. I think there's a tendency sometimes, and I don't wish to insult anybody with this, but I think there is a tendency sometimes within helping and caring professions to assume they have the right to be trusted because of the job they do. I don't believe that. The clients that we're working with have been some of the most let down clients in society. And also the person that they previously trusted did horrible things to them, um, but said they were going to love them. I love you and I hurt you. So why would anybody coming to any of our services that's been through that automatically trust us? They might want to, they might think it's probably okay, but somewhere inside there is going to be a real fear of doing that and a real risk I think in doing that so our job is evidence that we're trustworthy and we do that by being on time and knowing who we're talking to and involving the person in all the planning that we're doing and having a nice environment to see them in and doing all the things that and that that will show and demonstrate to somebody that here I am and I am worth engaging with and it's our job to do that it's not the client's job to do that so again there are agencies that sometimes use phrases like fails to engage or you know reluctant those terms are pejorative and judgmental um it's our job to engage clients if they're not engaging it's something we're not doing we're not making it safe enough for them. the thing about a trauma-informed approach is that it focuses on that as a feature of the work it's not a separate thing it's part of what we do to um, enable people to engage and if we do that really well then it's amazing how people will come on board and change. And we have really high attendance rates in our groups because of the way that we set it up and the way that we um, make it safe and trustworthy for people. We don't have high dropout rates. People want to come because they actually are safe and feel confident and begin to notice the changes within themselves. And listen to you describe all of that, it actually it feels so respectful as well as building trust, it feels like it comes from a place of respect. That's that's what I heard in what you've just said as well. Yeah, and and and, it, and it also I got berated on Twitter once for saying uh, someone was horrified that I was kind in one of my training sessions and took a picture of the slide and put it all over Twitter. Go, what does she know? What's kindness got to do with it? Kindness has got everything to do with it. It's, you know, it's about how it's being respectful, it's being kind, and it's being authentic. It's meeting somebody where they are. And working out our responsibility in that and accepting that whatever they've done has been a way of, to survive and needs, you know, recognizing mm-hmm. as a survival mechanism. They might not work so effectively when you're not in the abusive relationship, continuing to take drugs or drink or whatever. It might get you in trouble with other agencies. But actually, you don't need to continue to do those things if we can undo that internalized perpetrator and if we can work. It's, it's, it's those were coping strategies to survive the horror of whatever you were living with really so I think it is I think the Mm. challenge though because you mentioned earlier on I used to do the vicarious trauma training for um for safe lives and I I, I think I have an I think my video is still doing the rounds although it looks different now um but I think um I think the challenge for being trauma informed is that it also makes the worker more vulnerable though because if we are if we're going to let our guard down in the sense of that meeting someone equally, then then we become more acceptable to them and we become more vulnerable to them in the sense that um, and I'm it's still not it, that doesn't mean that you're sharing lots of personal stuff, but what you're doing is you're inviting somebody to share a different space with you rather than that very boundary. This is what I do. This is I'm going to do. 
you're just you're the one with the problems not me it's stepping over that and I think that's where it's really important then that you have you that your organization helps support you with that because to be genuinely trauma-informed just will make workers I think more vulnerable and obviously so we're recording this now in the period of COVID-19 we're in the second phase um, just about to leave the second phase phase of lockdown um, so lots of things that you've described obviously there are all the factors at the moment that are playing into all of that and actually you know talking about kindness that is something that has been talked about over the last um, nine weeks or so as well when we have really um, seen the level of kindness um, and the capacity that, that people have for that um, but just tell me, Sue, a little bit more about the impact of COVID-19 as you see it on, on, on all of these things that you've, that you've just talked to us about. I think, well, I think there's the immediate things that are those, that for those, are, um, obviously for those people that are living in, you know, coercive and controlling relationships and can't get out, it, it's hideous and horrendous. And hopefully once this is over and people have got can travel more than, than maybe some of those families can can be made safe for those that have separated from the perpetrator i think there are you know there are issues around lockdown maybe triggering some of the abuse so the isolation might feel like the isolation when you were in an abusive relationship the fear and anxiety level may feel like the same fear and anxiety level when you were in it so there's going to be issues maybe for some people about managing their emotions and managing to regulate their emotions because it's triggering previous fears and horrors um i think also there's that bit about you're a bit more vulnerable if you're post-abuse to being either targeted by your perpetrator or a new one you know because if you're if you're on your own with your kids and you um the person that used to hurt you is now telling you that you know well it was all a big mistake and it will never happen again and why can't they help out and do your shopping for you you know you've been on your own for lots of weeks dealing with you know a couple of kids in lockdown any help is going to feel like good help so there's that risk for people that they might get sort of caught back in it again I think is an issue I think post this one of my one of my concerns is that people are going to come out of this and this is all going to get medicalized somehow again so you're going to end up with people talking about trauma in a way that isn't what I've talked about in terms of you know how we work with it but there could be a tendency to sort of start to label people Again, basically, I mean, as I used to talk about on the Idva train, so many people I've worked with have been given a late, particularly women, a label of borderline personality disorder, when in fact what they had was complex trauma. Now, complex trauma has finally been recognised by the powers to be and appears in the International Classification of Statistic and Diagnostic Manual now, whichever one it is. It appears in one of the, either the English or the American version. So there is something now for people to reference to because the symptoms of complex trauma, the impact of complex trauma and borderline personality disorder can appear similar. I don't believe in diagnostic labels for anybody, but I think knowing that it's not... So borderline personality disorder suggests there is something wrong with you. You are wrong. It's your personality that's wrong. Complex trauma says it's something happened to you that's caused this. So it's a completely different... Do you, do you see the difference? It's subtle, but it's, it's really important because if we use borderline personality disorder we're just saying to someone well there you go that's you you're stuck with that if we use complex trauma we go oh, well there might be things we can do to help and that's a response to what happened to you and how you know it's just completely different yeah and and again just just listening to you um and how you led into that made me think very much about this obviously the lockdown period that we're in the professionals mm -hmm. are also going to be in that situation themselves mm -hmm. dealing with their own 
version of lockdown and family life and 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 um you know ill health potentially so those things that are going on for professionals who are seeking to help and support in all the right ways people experience domestic yeah. abuse and obviously some of those professionals may themselves now be locked down in, in, an, in an abusive household as well so there is there is a lot that we need to think ahead and um look at the risks and how we might end up coming out of this and what we could do to prevent some of this trauma and the things that you've described being exacerbated. I mean, I think there's a real opportunity to uh, to, to, to have organisations that are more trauma-aware or trauma-informed. Um, and I don't know that that will happen. I mean, I'll be very sad if it doesn't because I think it will be an opportunity missed if it doesn't. Certainly before COVID, we were doing lots of work with people around how they how they uh, develop a trauma-informed organisation. Um, and we have some courses around helping them do that. But I think, I don't know what's going to happen post-COVID in terms of finances and everyone putting money in certain ways. Mm. It would be really lovely to think that organisations are already thinking... How do we? How are we more trauma informed to support our staff as well as our clients? You can't do one without the other. It won't work. How can you go out and be trauma informed with people and honest and genuine and open if you go back and just told, well, you haven't met your quota this week? As one of the good things I think that's happening around all this COVID, one of the things that delights me is it's the end of hot desk. <laughs> The thing about working and reducing trauma on people is I'm having a safe space to work in. So those desks we all used to have that mm-hmm. a picture of our family on or a pot plant or, you know, all our chocolate in the bottom drawer right. for those stressful moments, that made us a little bit safer where we worked. You take that away and you make people hot desk and you don't have it. <laughs> it's, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? No, well, no, I've not. <laughs> it doesn't sound ridiculous. People don't think about it, Michelle. Yeah, I haven't thought about it, but now you say it. Yeah. The thing about being trauma-informed is it's simple, really. Its application doesn't require lots of money. It doesn't mean that you have to change lots of things. You just have to start to think about things a bit differently and just go, well, what does that achieve, you know? So all that, all those poor staff hot-desking in huge offices, don't bring any safety into work with them because there's no photo of their family. So their, their work life... Uh, doesn't have any of the um, sort of boundaries of protection that their outside life has. We we do a thing with kids. We do actually we do it with the adults as well. Um, we make things called transitional love objects, and transitional love objects are those things that that um, we carry around with us that remind us of home. So the children, you know, you see kids going into primary school with. Um, my daughter had one she had a blanket that she sucked until it disappeared and if I was really lucky I could get away and wash it and then she would be cross with me because it didn't smell like blanky anymore it smelled different but she trailed that blanket around with her until she was probably eight or nine until she was ready to give it up um and then it went but that was her that was part of me that she took into school with her every day it was the thing that made her feel safe it was the thing that if she felt vulnerable or um, frightened she had blankie to smell and that made her think of home the evidence tells us that children with transitional love objects are healthier that it's a good thing to do um, and unfortunately you know I've heard awful stories where children are you know they have that object taken off them when they go into class and they're not allowed to have it which fractures for that child they need to be able to feel safe 
And not all children need them, but some do. So, so it's the same for us as adults. So as adults, we carry around transitional love objects. And that might be a little photograph of someone we love in our wallet, but it might be that pot plant, pot plant on our desk at work. There are things that we need that we look at and unconsciously reassure us that we're safe and all's well with the world. Good. I think a lot of people will be as well. So I think they would have been already, but especially here when you describe it like that, there's probably a lot of uh, dawning um, going over people as to what that actually is like to hot desk in a, in a big open pad office. So we'll see um, see what happens there. You've talked about um, we and your training courses and how you've worked with children and adults Tell me a bit more about that. And also, I know you've written a book because I have the rather beautiful recovery book <laughs> it's purple cover in my hands. So just tell me about where you've kind of, the journey you've been on over the last couple of years to get to the book and why you've, you've written this book. And I think, that, you know, the, the value of it really now in the situation that we're in. Yeah, so... Um, so about, I suppose it was about three years ago now, I realised, I mean, up until then, I'd sort of been going around the country myself, delivering most of my training, and realised that I couldn't keep doing that, um, partly because I really was fed up with trains and hotel rooms, and, and also just, uh, it, I was the only person doing it, and it, and it meent that we get really good feedback on our, our, our toolkit groups, and it would mean it would stop if I stopped, so um, I, I formed a company with a, a, a ex-colleague and friend of mine Kirsty Passmore and um, we set up Rockpool so what we do at Rockpool it gives me more it's given me more time to write things really and, and not have to be on the road and we have a fantastic team of associates who are all set experts in their sector that do most of our training now so since uh, since we set up Rockpool um, I have I think we had the sexual violence toolkit before. So we, so before Rockpool, uh, we had the adult and children domestic violence toolkits, which are run along all the lines I've talked about, trauma-informed, CBT-type programmes. We have one for sexual violence, where the sexual violence is not within an intimate relationship. Um, but I was also involved um, with uh, South Wales Police and Public Health, who was sort of one of the first organisations looking at the adverse childhood experience studies and the work that was being done in America and the trauma-informed work that comes with that, which was like, just was a joy to me because I've been working in a trauma-informed way for over 30 years. So suddenly to hear people mainstreamingly talking about it was incredible. Um, and I was lucky enough to go with them and visit some centres of excellence, out of which we've also got the ACES Recovery Toolkit for adults and children. And we do a lot around trauma-informed training. We have a trauma-informed educators course. So we really are trying to promote as much trauma-informed work um, as we can. The book is the my original recovery toolkit in a self-help form. Um, it had been around a long time, Michelle, with me thinking of it and draft versions of it and just really hadn't had the time to do anything with it. And it, we, we were able to sort of bring it back and it, it was already started looking at how we would publish it before COVID-19, but it just coincidentally, it, it all happened around the same time. It's for People separated from their abusive relationship, as is the toolkit group. Um, it's the same structure. So it takes you week by week through the different sessions that we might run in the toolkit. Slightly different, slightly different because obviously some of the stuff you can only do in the room with, with a group. Um, and it provides you with, you know, things to fill in and little 
quizzes to do and ways to record your thinking. Um, so it's this, it's exactly the same as the as the group program, but um, in handy form. I think it's for people that are never going to access the group because the group doesn't run in their area. For people who may have done the program and want to top up, you can buy it and stick it under your bed. I do think, because someone asked me this question, I do think it's a useful resource for professionals and friends and family to read it and truly understand what has happened to somebody that's been through an abusive relationship and why they may have behaved the way they've behaved can give insight. Um, and the only the only real rider with it is it's not if you're still in an abusive relationship because if we talk about change and being different, that make you make your situation more risky. So it is post abuse. Okay, thank you. It's been really, really interesting to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. Um, is there anything that you want to say to finish off, Sue? Um, no, I mean, except that, you know, if you go to www.rockpool.life is our website, and you can see everything that we're up to. Um, someone asked me the other week what, I think it might even have been you, Michelle, on the other podcast I did about what, what did I want for the book? And I sort of said, oh, you know, didn't I didn't have a lot of, I hadn't thought about it a lot. But since you asked that question, I just, I'd like to see it in refuge, in every refuge in the country. You know, I'd like to see it there as an option for people to read um, as soon as possible so that they they didn't have to carry that internalised perpetrator around in them for any longer than necessary. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd like. That recognises that recovery is important and that's a long journey for a lot of people, isn't it? And, and to have opportunities to help them with that is really, really important. But also that recovery is possible. Yeah. You know, you know that it and you know, the reality is of so many women I've worked with over the years and men, they just want to get their lives back, Michelle. You know, they don't want this to define them. They don't want this to carry this mm -hmm. them. They just want to get on with the life that they're entitled to. And this book offers them some mechanisms to make that a bit easier. But thank you very much for asking me to do this. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you, Sue. And I'm looking forward to reading the book. It's been a, a real pleasure. So thank you. 